Come on, church. Can you say hallelujah? hallelujah. One more time. Hallelujah. hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Father God, we bless your name. On the outset of this Thanksgiving week, we are your people and we praise you. We're grateful for the gift of Thanksgiving. We know that it is, it is the key, the key that walks us in to the presence of God. Psalm 100 tells us that we enter, we enter by the words, thank you. And so on this week of thanks, hear your people at New Spring say thank you. Thank you for family. Thank you for loved ones. Thank you for friendship. Thank you for, uh, God, a church that we can be a part of and God that's loved us and we love. God, thank you for food. Come on, somebody. Thank you for uh, football teams that win. At least this week. Next week, we're not going to be able to say somebody's going to take an L next week. But we say thank you in advance for wins this week, God. And we thank you for your word now as we look forward to you feeding our souls. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said amen, amen, amen. All right, church, you can grab a seat. And uh, you look good, church. How you feeling? How you feeling? We look we good? Uh, I know I mentioned it in the prayer there, but it was a good day for South Carolina football teams yesterday. Pretty much all across the state. We can all grin at each other and smile. I do have to give a, a, just a subtle nod. Uh, I'm a Furman Paladin. I think some of you guys know that. We, we went into yesterday 9-1, and 9-1. and one. Uh, We were playing a 1-9 and nine team yesterday, and uh, we lost. We lost. And so I owe a congratulations to the Wofford Terriers, our Spartanburg campus, and to specifically our Aiken campus pastor, Matt Steelman, uh, because I thought I was going to be just kind of subtly rubbing it in this morning. But uh, our Furman Paladins, we got humbled. Uh, but next week, we're playing in the playoffs, and I think Wofford's going to be at home eating turkey. Okay. All right. There we go. That's all I got. That's all. That's it. That's it. Okay. Uh, hey, when you came in this morning, I wanted to bring your attention to this overflow document. And uh, speaking of Aiken, there's a lot of exciting news coming up about Aiken, South Carolina. And, uh, and we are going to be this year stepping into our overflow offering, our end-of-year offering. One of the statements we talk about is that the kingdom of God moves at the speed of sacrifice. It's true that God's people, because we're following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his sacrifice, he broke that, that dividing wall of hostility between us and God, and he brought us into a new kingdom. And those of us that are walking around with the Spirit of God, we too sacrifice, we give, we serve, we love, and wherever sacrifice goes, the kingdom of God advances. And so as we come to our end of your offering, and we wanted to give you guys something, and here's what I want you to do with this. I want you to take this home, if you would, and invite you and your family to pray through this content. Pray about what God is calling us as your, church, as your church, if you're a part of New Spring 2, we get this year to be able to put our Aiken campus in a larger permanent facility. And uh, if you're in Aiken, this is no news to you, but they have outgrown their facility at the back of an Ollie's, and uh, we've got a piece of property that we own, and this year we're going to be able to get them in that facility. And so I want to invite you to pray about what you can do to be a part of that. In addition, you're going to see our 2030 vision, church. You're going to see what we as the people of God, the elders of this church have been praying towards that over the next now, um, almost we're almost six years away from 2030. Can you believe that, y'all? 2023 has got like six weeks left, and then we're in 2024. 
But over the next six years, what we're trying to accomplish and do is not only get our church out of debt. We did that. Congratulations. Put your hands together. You're out of debt. We were able to knock that out at the end of February. But now we're able to get our, our campuses that aren't in permanent homes, Aiken, Charleston and Myrtle Beach are the three into permanent homes. This year we're starting with Aiken, but you'll also see something I want to bring your attention to, and we'll tell you more about that in the weeks ahead. We're also going to be planting churches. And so we have the opportunity over the next couple of weeks, we're going to introduce you to two of our church planters, their families. As a matter of fact, in the Anderson campus this morning, you got to see one of those church planters' wives baptize a girl in her small group. And they were sitting right down here. So anyway, it just blessed my heart to watch Cap be a part of the baptism this morning. But we'll share that with you later. But would you take this and pray about it? Um, it? It would just be incredible this year as your family is getting together for you to be a part of what God's doing at New Spring Church and to accelerate the vision of the kingdom here. If this is your church home, I want to invite you to that. If you'll receive that, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Thank you. All right. If you got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and open them up to the book of John. The book of John. And uh, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're in a series that is called Be Last. And you've gotten to hear a little bit about Be Last and where it comes from. But really, this is a super practical, pragmatic, able to do it kind of series. This is this idea of being last, of putting God first, of putting others second and putting ourselves in the position of third, of position of last. This is what we see in the kingdom of God. This is the pathway to greatness. As a matter of fact, we get this, this idea of being last from our Savior. And some of you will remember this, and not rhetorical, you might be able to help me with it, but Jesus was talking about his kingdom, and he was talking about people that would follow his kingdom principles and ethos, and he would say something as simple as this. He said, hey, in this world, um, you need to understand people are gonna wanna put themselves first. It's just natural. We live in a me-first world, don't we? And our Lord said, people are going to want to put themselves first, but I want you to know something. Uh, in, in my kingdom, the first will actually what? They will actually be last, but rather those that put themselves last on this planet in the way that they live, in the way that they serve, in the way that they love, in the way that they prioritize, those that put themselves last, they're actually in the end going to be the one who is first. And so this is just taking this idea is so valuable. And I'll tell you what, moms and dads out there, this one is practical. It's practical in your home if your kids are like mine and they're constantly uh, jockeying for the front seat of the car or jockeying for who gets to sit beside mom at the dinner table. I don't know if that's a thing at y'all's house, but it is at ours. Who gets to sit beside mom? Uh, if you're, they're jockeying for who gets the snacks first or who gets to pick the TV show or what we're listening to in the car. Uh, in the me first world, what we need to understand is that this be last posture is different and that when we are willing to be different, what do we do, church? When we're willing to be different, we actually make a difference. Yeah. And so this is the idea of be last. Here's the question I want to ask though us today as we continue in this series is what does that look like? Practically speaking, what does that look like? And uh, I want to show you who Jesus Christ in his word said was the greatest at this. Now this is high, high compliment when Jesus Christ speaks these words. They're recorded in Matthew eleven eleven. If you've got your Bibles and you want to make a note of this, or if you've got the app open, you can do this as well. But uh, in in uh, Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus is actually talking about John the Baptist, 
And he says these words. Turn your eyes to the screen if you don't mind. Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone, what new spring? Anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I want us just to sit with those words for a moment. Truly, if we're sitting and listening to our Lord this morning define greatness, he says, when it comes to human greatness, think about this. John the Baptist and the way he lived and the ethos that he lived, his, his, his body language and his words and his example are what our Lord holds up to us and puts before us as the ideal of greatness. No greater woman, or no greater woman, no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. But then he's gonna add, those that are least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he. So let me ask this question. I want you to write this down. What does that kind of greatness look like? What did that kind of greatness look like when we're talking about John the Baptist? And Jesus is standing up in a crowd and he says, I want you to watch what he did. I want you to look at his life. I want to hold him up as an example of greatness. What does that look like? And as we have conversations about greatness in our lives today, as we, as we have conversations, whether it's around athletics and say, man, they are great, they are world class, or if we have conversations around great, man, they're an unbelievable leader, they're an unbelievable uh, person, an individual in our community, they're great. Jesus would hold up John's life and say, no, 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 listen, if you wanna know what great looks like, look at John, watch what he does. And what I wanna offer to you today is a statement that many of you will know, and maybe you've even heard, that John spoke. John spoke a statement in John 3.30, and I believe this was his driving motivator in all that he did, and I believe it's a picture of greatness. And so now let's turn to John 3.30. Here's what John said greatness would look like. This is the way John articulated his convictions about how to live this great life. He says, talking about Jesus, greatness is this, he must increase, but I must decrease. Could you read that with me, New Spring Church? John 3.30 says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. One more time, he must increase, but I must decrease. So when John was asked about greatness, when he was asked about living for Christ, when he was asked about how to live, he would say, it's as simple as this. Let Jesus increase in your life and let yourself decrease. Simple words that we can say out loud on a Sunday morning, a much harder way to live, amen? Now, let me give you an example of this because this passage, specifically this idea, was something that over time God has used in my life, over time, to help me walk the journey between conversion when I started following Jesus to being a disciple. And if you've ever wondered what the difference is and how to navigate, how do you go from I'm saved, I've given my life to Christ, to being a full-blown, all-in disciple of Jesus, what does that look like? I believe it is a life marked by this pathway. It is a pathway of God increasing in your life and yourself decreasing. You ready to see a picture of it? Let me show you a, a picture of it. Here it is, you ready? That's what that looks like. Let me just turn it. There you go. How about that? Oh, I'm, they're playing with me. There you go. 
all right? So this is the picture. I want you to get this in your hearts and in your minds as we look at this, that we are naturally in a place where we live a me-first life. Moms and dads, how many of you know you've got some cute young sinners that you raised at your house that are naturally living a me-first life? Show of hands. Where you at on all our campuses? Yeah. I mean, this is why we come out saying, mine, no. This is why we pull hair and bite, right? That's why we're selfish, and uh, the only thing that we've really got to wrestle with is as we get older, we can kind of manipulate it and hide it. But if something supernatural doesn't happen in our lives, we're constantly going to be living a me first life. Let me just say this before I go further. We will not drift to a he must increase, I must decrease lifestyle. Yeah, you're not going to drift to that. You're not going to just live your life and raise your kids or get married and go into retirement and live your career. You're not going to drift to this kind of lifestyle. You're only going to get here because you've got the supernatural spirit of God. And that spirit of God in you is going to lead you again and again and again into a place where he must increase, but we've got to decrease. And so this morning, I just want to just, again, challenge and charge and encourage and inspire you to take a hold of this in the example of the life of John the Baptist. Because he lived this way. He lived an ever Jesus increasing lifestyle, but I want you to see there is no reality where you also are gonna increase too. And this is, this is the real sneaky, subtle way that the enemy whispers into the ears of Christians, especially Christians in the South Carolina context, is that we can, listen to me, so sneaky. We think that perhaps... I have thought that there is a lifestyle where I make much of me making much of Jesus and that that is the way you live out the Christmas, or Christmas, the Christian life. And I just wanna state clearly, when I got convicted of this back in my 20s, I was already on staff at this church and what I saw around me was in my own life, I saw myself and lots around me making much of themselves, making much of Jesus. And I want to just offer you John 3.30 as a corrective. That actually, the Christian life is meant to be lived, the be last, God first life is meant to be lived in an ever increasing raising up of Jesus' name and Jesus in my life and an ever-decreasing, an ever-lowering ego and arrogance and flesh. And this one is subtle in church world because a lot of times we, we talk about the correctives that are outside of the walls of the church or outside of the people of God. But I want you to know John the Baptist lived a life where he made much of Jesus. But it meant that he was gonna have to not make much of himself. And I wanna offer that up as a proper way to correct how we might live a life that prepares the way for the Lord. So what I wanna do today is show you three scenes in John's life, three moments that we can get a hold of and consider where he was able to do this. And I'm gonna use some art in order to do that, this. If you wanna read about these scenes, you can go in on your time. And if you're looking at the app, you might even see some of these entire texts of scripture. But the first scene I wanna go to is, is uh, Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. And this scene is actually the scene before John the Baptist was even born. Let's look at this piece of art right here. Luke chapter one, here's the, here's the piece of art. 
So this is actually some classic art. And back in the Renaissance, John the Baptist was, a, was an individual that inspired artists uh, to create beauty, which is incredible, by the way. But this is a scene of John's mother and father. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is Gabriel. Now, let me just go on record. I don't think Gabriel looked anything like that, just a side note. Uh, but this is the way that the scene was commemorated. And here's what happened. Let me set the scene. Luke tells us that John the Baptist's dad was, was named Zach. Everybody say Zach. Short for Zacharias. And John's mom was named Elizabeth. Everybody say Elizabeth. And so they were old in age. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're old in age, but I feel older in age every day. They were old in age. They were beyond childbearing years. And if you don't know what that means, talk to your mom and dad later. Um, and uh, they had no children. Now, here's what's really cool about Zach and Liz. Zach was a servant, a Levite, who served in the priesthood. And so a couple of times a year, he got called into work, like working the night shift, okay? It's what you did. You went and worked for two weeks at a time up at the temple. And so he would go into work. And at this moment, he was actually selected to be the one who got to go into the Holy of Holies uh, and actually be the one who lit the menorah, the incense candles, and was actually able to come in and pray. Upon going into the place to um, light the candle, the, the Bible actually records that he meets Gabriel, the angel there. Now, before I get to the story of what happens, I need you to also know that Liz, John the Baptist's mom, she was of the line of Aaron, which just means that she was also in the priestly line. Aaron, of course, the brother of Moses, the very first priest we get a chance to see into the people of God. And so here we have a mama and a dad who don't have any kids, but they're both living their life to the glory of God. So I'm not gonna say be a mom and a dad yet. They'd just be a husband and a wife. And they go in to serve and he's an older man, probably got a little gray in his beard. He comes in to serve and there he sees Gabriel and Gabriel blows him away. Now you should see this, but all the time in the New Testament, when we see angels, they don't look like cuddly little babies like we see, or maybe even that picture of art we see. They actually are completely terrifying. And I don't know if they're terrifying because they're glowing so bright and you have to squint, or if they're so big and powerful and their voice knocks you down. But go and read Luke 1. Zach is terrified of Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him, don't fear. You're gonna, you're gonna actually have a child. But Zach doubts this. And so Gabriel shuts his mouth and says, you're not gonna be able to speak for some time. I am Gabriel. I've been sent from the throne room of Yahweh himself to deliver this message. And so you're gonna learn, Zach, uh, that God's gonna do this and his word will not fail. Um, while he's in the holy of holies, everybody else is outside praying and he comes out and they know he's been in there for longer than normal. And the, the Bible records that when he comes out, he can't speak but he's, I'm sure, signing with his hands, trying to um, tell them what happened inside. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but just to give you a verbal or a, a picture of that, I'm sure he's going, I don't know, right? Lots of confusion there. That was weird. I'm sure they probably thought so too. I just want you to, hey, Jesus on your level. Here we go, all right. The Bible coming to life. He ultimately gets a tablet and he tells them what happened. He comes home and he tells his wife what's happened and they end up finding out they're pregnant. Now, while they're pregnant, they're, they're um, you know, of course, Luke records all this. They're, they're 
growing with child and uh, more, of, more of this, but they ultimately get to the moment where Elizabeth has the child and she can speak. So they ask Elizabeth as she's having this baby, what would you like to name the child? And what did Elizabeth say, New Spring Church? Elizabeth said, the child's name is John. Well, everybody was like, what? The child's name is John? What do you mean the child's name is John? Nobody named John in your family. Your family doesn't have that name. That's, you know, I mean, my family, I don't know about you, but I mean, even in my family, I'm Bradford Lee Cooper. My dad, Thomas Lee Cooper. My brother, my brother is Thomas Zachary Cooper. He's got my dad's name. Even we still do this today. It was super weird when you ask them, especially in first century Palestine, where is the family name? Where's the heritage? Where's the lineage? This is not in the, in the family. Why are you naming the child John? And so they do, I guess, what, you know, we might do if we were confused about it. And we go over and we ask the other spouse. Hey, Liz says the child's name is John, but what do you say, Zach? What's the child's name? And he's, and he writes down on a tablet, the child's name is John. The Bible says as soon as he says the child's name is John, his mouth opens up, and for the first time in, I don't know, 10 months, he's able to speak again. That would have been quite a sight to see. And I'm sure at that point, he was able to articulate the scene that we just looked at about the the angel coming and telling him that John was going to be one who prepared the way. But here's the whole point I'm bringing this up for us today is we are looking at the life that wants to cause in every way and aspect the name of Jesus to increase, but our names to decrease. One of the things that John shows us is that even before John shows up, he had a mother and father who had predetermined that with their family, they were going to make the name of the Lord great. And one of the things I want to put before us, moms and dads, One of the things I wanna put before us grandparents, one of the things I wanna put before us single people is that you and I get to predetermine, are we going to make the the cultural things great in our life or are we gonna make Jesus Christ and his ways and his kingdom great? And we get to determine that. As we raise our children, we get a chance to determine, are we gonna lean in and listen to the ways of the world? Are we gonna prioritize the ways of the world or are we gonna prioritize the word of God? And what the word of God says. And I'm just super encouraged, even this yesterday, some of you may have known this, but we, we had nearly 2,000 people across our campuses out serving in the community in our 4SC Serve Day in a, in a missional kind of way, being last, partnered with all kinds, dozens of other groups in our community. And one of the coolest things about a lot of this is many of the folks serving were moms and dads, serving with their children. Just side note, let me chase just a momentary rabbit right here. Every campus got to serve yesterday except our Clemson campus. They had a home football game yesterday. So Clemson campus, you get a chance to serve this afternoon. I'm asking you, I think there's a couple hundred signed up. Uh, Would you help us get across the 2,000 people served number today by uh, signing up and being a part of 4SC? And uh, we had so many people out serving yesterday. This is This is such a great opportunity, moms and dads, to show your kids the way of Christ. Even this morning, I knew I was preaching this, and I'm coming in the room this morning. Before any of you got here, we have teams that get here and prepare, and we're praying, and our worship teams are working. We're walking through everything, and I'm watching as one of our camera operators... He's my good friend, Ben, and he's been serving over a decade as a camera operator And he is on the stage during run-through, actually holding the cable, letting his little 
girl, Beatrice, learn how to operate the camera. Now, she wasn't out here doing this just a moment ago for you guys because she's not quite ready yet. But she's out here training to serve the Lord. And dad is bringing her on Sunday, just like before he brought Beatrice, he brought his son, Benjamin, years ago to show them what it looks like to serve the Lord. I just want to put before us that in the season of life we're in, if we want to take this be last thing to the, to the fullness of the level, we've got an opportunity to show our kids how to live a great life, to show the other folks in our communities, even if you don't have children, how to live a great life by our example. And we have the opportunity through that to cause the name of Christ to increase in our generation, but it's going to require us to decrease. Amen? That's scene number one. Scene number two of John the Baptist's life. Let's fast forward and we'll look at this new art. And so this new art we've got is actually a picture. It's a classic Renaissance photo. Anybody know this scene? This is the Jordan River. I don't know if you can tell or not, but that's what that is. Uh, This is the Jordan River and this is from John chapter one and John chapter three. In John chapter one and John chapter three, we actually record 30 some odd years later that John the Baptist is out preaching in the wilderness. And he's on the path of greatness. Remember, Jesus said, if you want to be great, look at John's life. Look how he lived. No greater man born of woman. And what does greatness look like? And so John is out preaching. He's saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the word repent has gotten a bad name and a bad rap, I think, in our day. All the word repent means is change your mind. Change your mind about life. Let the Lord change your mind, repent, turn from your ways, the ways of your nature and the ways of your culture, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and they would come to John and they would actually be baptized for the repentance of sin. We actually saw at the Anderson campus this morning two beautiful examples of baptism. Maybe perhaps at your campus you saw the same. And at the time he's baptizing, he has a huge following. All the Pharisees and the scribes are starting to come out. They're walking. This is a a one day's journey to walk out to the Jordan River to see John. And they're walking out to see him preach. And then comes comes this, this, begin to be this kind of undercurrent of maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe John the Baptist is the anointed one. Maybe he's the one that all the Old Testament speaks about. And, And John 1 actually records that they come to John and they ask a very simple question. They look him in the eye and they say, hey, John, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And then they look at John and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the savior? Are you the hero? Are you the king that is to come? They they were asking and they asked it of him. Now, let me just pause right here before I continue the story. I want us to put ourselves in the place of John. How awkward and wild would that be for someone to come and say, are you, I mean, this is, a, this is a massively talked about and not, I mean, romanticized maybe kind of idea. This is what for thousands of years the Jewish people had been talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God. And they're coming and they're looking at you and they're going, are you the one? Are you him? I mean, I've heard about how Your mom and dad saw an angel before you were born. I've heard about how you, you, before you were even here, the the reputation and the expectation was huge. Are you the one? And the Bible records, listen to me, that John the Baptist over and over and over and over and over answers this way. He says, I am not the one. 
I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And now we think back retrospectively and we could probably go, well, of course not. He's not Jesus. But I just want to offer to us, I think this is a lesson for us to recognize that in life, one of the, one of the sounds and one of the, one of the cultures and the ecosystems that we can get in is that we think too much of ourselves and especially do we think too much of ourselves when this kind of sound is around us. Yeah, good job. Great job. Amazing. Oh my goodness, that's, that's unbelievable. And so I just want to suggest to every one of us that really the character we have on the inside isn't seen in our failures. The character we truly have on the inside is seen when we succeed as human beings. When we succeed in our business, when we succeed in our homes, when people start to pat us on the back and clap their hands, when they start to retweet and like, when they start to go, hey, have you, have you met such and such? They're such a great guy. When, when somebody pays you a compliment, when somebody is, is impressed by you, that, that truly one of the ways that we can, we can fall for the, the schemes of the enemy and miss an opportunity to really walk out greatness is when people in our world think much of us and they want to make much of us, making much of Jesus even. But what John the Baptist did when they came and they said, are you him? He said, he must increase. I must decrease. I am not the one. I am not the Messiah. I am not him. I'm not the hero. I am not the savior. And maybe perhaps this could maybe even create a little bit of relaxation in some of you guys in your lives, in your, in your relationships, in your parenting. One of the best things can occur in your life when you feel like all the pressure is on you, when you are trying to be the one to provide everything, when you're trying to be the one to make a way for your family or your business or, or your home or, or your career. I just wanna suggest that you need to hear the good news today that you don't have to carry that kind of weight, sir. You don't have to carry that kind of weight, mom. You don't have to carry that kind of weight, husband. Now you gotta do what God's called you to do and you're gonna have sweat on your brow and you're gonna have dirt under your fingernails and you are gonna work hard in life, but you don't have to be Jesus for your family. You don't have to be the savior of your community. You don't have to be the savior of your home because there's already one who is. And he is meant to be the Messiah. And his shoulders were meant to carry the weight. And he can handle the pressure of the day in and day out. And so one of the things that John the Baptist shows us how to do is when they were all coming to him, when they were all coming to John and saying, are you the Messiah? He says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he lived a life that said, no, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. If you've ever wondered how to handle praise, success, people applauding, look to John. I am not, I am not, I am not, but look right there he is. There's Jesus Christ. People come to you and they say, how did you do it? How did you build that business? How did you raise those kids? How did you do it? How did you, I mean, it could be in every kind of environment in life. It could be in the classroom. It could be on the athletic field. It can be in your business. It can be in your home. And when people come to you and they want to praise you, Christian, listen to me. The thing we've got to do is say, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me, but it is about him. That's the posture of the be last life. Let's be a church that continues to say, as people say, man, I heard about the, the way you serve this way or the way you, you, your church might have done this or the people in your congregation did this. And, and when people clap their hands because they hear about the good work that King Jesus is doing, no, 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 it's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about us. But do you know my Jesus? It's about 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world less and less so that he might become more and more. That's scene two. Now, before I put up scene three, I just want to go ahead and say, truly, this next scene, it's intense. But I want you to know that this is one of those scenes that's in the Bible and I want you to know that the same way we teach kids, Jesus on their level back there in Kid Spring, one of the burdens that we feel as teachers and preachers and elders and pastors is that we've got to teach you Jesus on your level for adults. And so let me show you scene three for John the Baptist, Jesus on our level. This is a scene recorded as an image of John, who many of you may know, was arrested by Herod. Why was he arrested by Herod? Because Herod and Herod's adulterous live-in girlfriend, who was actually Herod's brother's wife, both claimed to be followers of Yahweh. They claimed to be Jewish. And John the Baptist just didn't mince words. He, he, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he was arrested. The Bible records all of this in the Gospels. And he was kept in the prison cell, but they, they did not kill him because he had such a crowd following him. People thought, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the anointed one. Maybe, they knew he was at least a prophet. And so they did not kill John for many days. We don't know exactly how long the timeline is. Months, perhaps, maybe up to a year. He was in prison But John knew who Jesus was, and while John was in prison, he actually, he sent a message. He sent a message by his disciples to Jesus. And he says, hey, Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one? Or should we be waiting for another? A little tongue-in-cheek. But I think this, this question that John sends to Jesus exposes his heart. As a matter of fact, look at me. I think it's good because it exposes our heart. How many of us know that we have said, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, but when I, when I can't feel you, when I can't see you, when I can't sense you, it, it's just natural human tendency to have doubt creep in. I want you to know it's okay to doubt. I want you to know I believe the Lord allows doubt and through pivotal circumstances to come into all of our lives so that we might look to John and see where he took his doubt. And he took his doubt to Jesus. He sends Jesus and says, aren't you the one? Or should we wait for another? Jesus sends a message back to John. That's actually the context of Matthew 11. And the message he sends back to John is tell John that I'm healing people of their blindness I'm, I'm healing people who can't walk. I'm, I'm raising people from the dead. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually doing all the work of the Messiah. So in essence, he was telling John, I'm the one. I am him. But the one thing that he does not tell John is that he's gonna take him out of that jail cell, that he's, gonna, he's going to ultimately set him free. So pause in the story, and let's change scenes for a moment. Now we are in Herod's throne room. John is living there in that jail cell and he's just being held up there so that he ultimately can't keep preaching and can't keep making um, Herod's wife mad. And Herod's stepdaughter comes into a banquet hall 
And the Bible actually says that she dances for this huge political party that King Herod was having. Now, I don't want to go too far here, but I want you to understand, she's not doing like, um, like my daughters do dance. She's not doing like the little 11-year-old cute ballerina dances that you might see at a school of dance somewhere this May. That's not what she's doing. She's actually dancing like you might see at an above 18 strip club. That's the kind of dancing that is inferred to. Do you understand what I'm saying? She comes in and she dances and it says in the scripture that it pleased Herod. And so in the front of all the banquet hall, he says, her name was Salome. Salome, what do you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And he's big and he's bold and he's brash and he's arrogant as he tells her this in front of all of his friends. And she doesn't know what she wants. So she goes to her mother and her mother knows what she wants. She wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter because John has been preaching about their sin. So her mother says, go tell Herod, you want John's head on the platter. So she comes back in the room and declares in front of everyone there at the banquet, I want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And Herod's already said, you can have up to half the kingdom. So he can't back up his word. Otherwise his, his ego would be on the line. And he says, all right, go do it guards. And they go into the room and we don't know exactly what occurred there, but we do have the image, the picture of her coming back into the banquet hall, holding a dish with the head of one of the people of God, one of the saints of God, one of the men who would be willing to be last. I want to put this before us as a final image. And I want to put this before us as a final image of what it might look like to live a be last life if you're going to put God first. The reality is here today, not every single one of us, maybe not anybody at this church, will have to lay down their life physically for God, but we might. One of the things that I want to put before us is that perhaps we haven't been really wrestling with the reality of what the gospel call is. And yes, the gospel call is that Jesus Christ is my Savior and He died on a cross to forgive me of my sins. And yes, that means that He secures for me eternal life and ultimately heaven. And we get to live with God forever. But the, the same call is not just that He would be our Savior, it's that He would be our Lord. And He has called us in this life to lay down our lives with the promise that in the life to come, we get to take up His. And I want you to look at me, church. That means that you and I might be called to go to lower levels than we're, we are now. Serving, humbling, laying down our lives, laying down our ways, and yes, even perhaps physically laying down our life for the glory of God. This is the way John the Baptist lived. And I just want to make sure that you feel this in your heart of hearts because this is the gospel. The gospel says, hey, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Come and take it up. Be thankful and, and yes, be grateful for forgiveness of sins in heaven when you die. But between now and heaven, one of the ways that we get to preach the good news of the gospel is that we get to serve and lay down our lives in our homes. But we need to be prepared and we need to be ready because if anything the last three or four years has taught us is we have no idea what's happening out there and nobody knows the future but God. But here's what I can tell you pastorally. I want you to be ready. I want you to be prepared to know how you are called to answer the question, who's the Lord? 
Who's the king? Who is this thing about? It's not about us. It is about him. And would we be the kind of people prepared to lay down our lives for King Jesus? Because that is the beautiful heritage that we have received. And 2,000 years later, men and women, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, have been willing to lay down their lives for King Jesus so that the good news might advance and more people around the world might hear about the greatness of God. Let me read Matthew 11 one more time. Would you hear the words of Jesus? Truly, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now look at this. This is your promise in mind. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Can I invite you to stand to your feet on all of our campuses? Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I'm going to invite now our ministry teams to begin to move in all of our rooms. And while they're moving, I want to set up the conversation. Because I know pastorally that this is, this is heavy. This is, a, this is a heavy thing to talk about. I mean, that was, like I said, that was Jesus on your level, adults. But why would we do that? Let me tell you why. I was in a conversation a month ago with uh, some other ministers and we were actually taking a class with a, a, my seminary at Wheaton. It's the president of Wheaton University. And we were having this conversation with him, Dr. Riken is his name, about every generation being a reaction to the generations before it. Every single church generation reacts to the generation before it. And I, I asked, I raised my hand, I said, Dr. Riken, what do you feel and sense that the reaction to our current generation might be? And he, he offered this that perhaps over the last 20 or 25 years in church world, this is a big general statement, perhaps one of the reasons that people, young people, Generation Z, Zoomers, those younger, are walking away or leaving the church or are not here or present, perhaps it's because we're not preparing them to live in the realities of our world. That if we constantly only give them the happy, clappy hands and the, the frail, fickle, you know, kind of, not fake, I don't want to say that because there's a lot of rejoicing. We are called to be a people where the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's a good thing. But if we only focus on that reality and we don't give them the truth of the gospel and the way of Jesus Christ, then we're not going to be prepared for what might happen in this next year or in the next 10 years or when the diagnosis comes or the struggle happens. We're not going to be prepared. And I, I just sat there just somber and sober going, oh my goodness, I think he's right. As, as, a, as a youth pastor here at New Spring Church who served this church for 10 years, I have seen many young people raised up in this church and it's beautiful to see them take their place as adults in the kingdom of God. But look at me, I've also seen many people who aren't in church anymore. And I wonder if perhaps maybe the reason they're not in church, because I know many of their stories, is that some kind of hardship came into their life and they didn't know what to do with it because they didn't know that that might be something that the Lord might allow to grow their faith and allow them the opportunity to point to Jesus. A critical juncture, suffering and pain. But one of the truths that I wanted to say to all of us is that the Lord allows pain to come into our lives so that we might eradicate self-sufficiency. That in my own strength and in my own ability, I can fix this. 
God allows pain to come into our homes. He allows disappointment to come into our families. He allows maybe even just questions and doubt to come into our lives so that we might get desperate again and bring our doubts, bring our questions, bring our pain to Jesus because church, he loves us and he loves you. And so as we respond today, I want you to carry that in your mind. Maybe you need to come and you are like, whoa, pastor, I have some of those doubts. I have some of that pain and, and I want to know where to take it today. I want to invite you to come and take it to somebody at the altar. Come and bring it to the Lord and pray. Ask someone to pray with you about those doubts as we respond in just a few moments, all right? If you're a Christ follower, we're going to bring a, a pastor out at your campus and they're going to navigate the table and the prayer time and our worship but I just want to just simply say, if you've got doubt that has kept you away from God, let today your doubt not keep you away, but draw you closer and respond and bring your doubts or your pain to Jesus. I believe we might be stepping into a beautiful time of honesty with our Lord who has called us to be last. Because church, he must increase. But what are we going to do? We must decrease. Let's pray and then we'll respond. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your scripture and we thank you for the life of John who shows us an example so that we might be prepared for whatever comes our way. That we might be prepared as parents to set our children on a course. That we might be prepared as, as leaders or business leaders or moms or dads to make our lives when we, when we get applause or accolades, how do we point to King Jesus? And so that at the most intense and painful moments of our lives, we might be prepared of how to live a be last life so that God might be seen as first and preeminent and supreme as we lay down our lives in practical, small, and big ways every single day to prepare the way for King Jesus to be seen as the Savior and the Lord of all of the world. Would you bless our response time now, God? And I just pray a special prayer, Lord. Would you bless men and women who are honest in the next few moments with you about the disappointment they might be feeling in their heart the loss, the questions. And Holy Spirit, would you meet them at altars and in prayer times as we in this Thanksgiving holiday season bring our doubts and our questions and we bring them to you. It's in Christ's name we pray and we all say together, amen.